right, so kind of transitioning a little bit. I got a lot of housekeeping things that we go through on days like this as we kind of wind down the ministry year. Um, I do want to thank all of those that have served faithfully through the years in different capacities and different formats. Um, you know, it, it's truly a wonderful thing to see as the body comes together to help the church run so efficiently over the years. It shows great persistence and perseverance, something that we're called to as Christians as we look forward to the, the second coming, as we look forward to the hope that we have in him. And today, as we go to his word, we're going to be going to the last chapter of Zephaniah as we finish up this book. And we're going to look at this last woe that he gives to Jerusalem and to the nations, but then also look at the blessings in terms of the hope that is going to be introduced that they have to look forward to. It's a, it's a wonderful picture that's in this chapter. Um, and through this, I'm going to, you know, as I had said before, this book is primarily written in poetry. And you have different bookends that are, um, that can be seen throughout the chapters. And I'm going to show you some different things such as uh, what a chiastic structure is. And it's a big word. It's going to be easier to show you than to explain it to you a little bit as, as I explain it for you to see. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But we're going to start by reading Zephaniah 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me. If not, they will be up on the screen. So in chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more eager they were, or all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may, may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Okay. So again, uh, a wonderful end, I think, to this book. Um, And we can make some different connections in our messages with the other chapters that we've gone over. We can recognize things that we're coming off of. You know, we're coming off of the judgments of the other nations. Um, We're coming off of these judgments that God's pronouncing at the end of chapter two, and he's transitioning into this rebellious city. Now, this rebellious city would be Jerusalem. So, as I mentioned before, you have what's called a chiasm in biblical literature. This is what a chiasm can look like. It's basically just a crossing of themes that you can find within the text, where you have different, um, different parts right here where you're going to separate what verses you're going to be talking about, and then you summarize what those verses are talking about and you can see the pattern and the rhythm that's happening here. It's coming kind of full circle within this writing so that when he gets to verse eight, you have all the judgments on the nations from the other A of judgments of the world. So you can see that connection there. And then you have the different connections kind of in between. You know, when you see this kind of structure, it really takes you aback. You know, sometimes we think of people in the olden days, oh, they're just old, they're, they have these old ways, they're not very smart. Hebrew is one of the most beautiful languages in terms of the wordplay and how it's done. Um, if you have ever have the opportunity to study the language, I would recommend it because there's so much more that you can pull out from this. Um, I was sharing with Brett this morning some of the things that I learned, and it was just one of those things where you can't really put it in a sermon, but at the same time, it's awesome to know and to be able to see those types of things. And when you see structure like this, um, you can see the eloquence. You can see the care that's taken within the writings and how it's being written. You know, if you ever were to write something or to present something, there's different structures that you can follow. There's a ton of different outlines that you can follow. There's a lot of books of how to do things. Um, and, and, you know, some people think, you know, you've got to have your thesis, your main point, and then maybe three other points to kind of build around that, right? This is where the history of the, the three-point sermon comes in, into play, where a lot of people think that that's the best format, because if you have more than three points and it gets too much, and you're just overloading on people. Guilty. I do that all the time. 
I'm not necessarily the best at three-point formats. I like to kind of teach as I go through. I kind of like to explain as we're going through different passages. Um, I tend to ramble a little bit as I go through this. So I never really think that I'm an eloquent speaker in terms of something like this. But all the more it shows how God can use us in our weaknesses. Because many of us struggle with even being able to get up and present something or to do public speaking. But God is faithful and he can see us through those types of times. You know, I've always said that another thing that people don't like to, is to do is to listen to themselves speak, whether that's in a recording or in a video format. Again, guilty. I hate doing that. It always baffles me when people want to come and listen to me speak. It's like, why? Why would you want to do that? You know, but again, it shows how the glory goes to God because he can work through all of us. It doesn't matter our weaknesses because he can use you to, for his kingdom and his glory. So this literary structure is amazing. And, and the structure as we see this summarizing this judgment portions, we're getting to that second B, the judgment on Jerusalem, chapters three, one through seven. And we see how Jerusalem is gonna be facing this punishment. I wanna dive in to some of these key points that we see that's being described. So you see how Jerusalem is being described. Rebellious, defiled, and oppressive. That's a fun description. That's how God sees them. That's how he's defining them. How do you think they were defining themselves? I mean, are these words that you think God would use for us as a church? as individuals? Do you find it difficult to have a healthy approach to criticism? I mean, words have power, right? We understand that, that they have great meaning in our lives and they can sway us one way or another in a lot of ways. You know, we have more of a New Testament approach that can bring in different identifiers, sure. But when you look at these terms, when you look at the, the terms, the identifiers in the New Testament, how healthy is our view? You know, the words that people use, a lot of times you can tell what their theologies are. I mean, because we can read these words, rebellious, defiled, oppressive, and we can agree, yeah, I'm rebellious, yeah, I'm sinful, woe is me. But how do we also bring in, I'm forgiven? I'm redeemed, beloved, adopted. Again, having a healthy balance and understanding, not going to either side of the extremes and camping out there. But when we look at these terms, rebelliousness, this is refusing to submit to God's word, to his will, to where we are the Lord and we're fighting over who is in that place, us or him, where our pride, our selfishness takes over, our arrogance gets in the way. Defilement, this is being polluted and plagued by sinful practices. You know, sin corrupts absolutely, and we need to understand that. Oppressors are those who are, are disregarding the rights of others, who are taking advantage of others uh, for their own personal gain. So they were rebelling against God, they were defiled by their sin, and they're cruel to their fellow brothers and sisters. This is how Jerusalem is being defined. 
And you think of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, how is it normally defined or identified? It is the city of Zion. It is on the holy hill. It's God's city. They were to be the model of what it is to follow God. And yet this is what they were giving off. Change it to a New Testament context and the church. The church is full of believers. The church, this church sits on a hill. How are we known? I mean, we, we might identify ourselves in glowing terms, but how are we known in the communities? What words would be used to define us? Are we a model for what it means to follow God? And you know, we might hear terms from people from the community and we might think, okay, it's, it's not in full context. They might have some misunderstandings. It could be a baseless claim. But here, for Jerusalem, these are not baseless claims coming from the prophet. God gave them evidences. Verse 2, they didn't listen. They were unresponsive to the prophets. They accepted no correction, so they're unteachable. They didn't trust in the Lord, and they're not drawing close to him. They're not seeking him in repentance and prayer. And again, I'm going to go back and forth, and you can flip back and kind of verify but I'm going to make a lot of different connections throughout the text today. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And you remember during that message, I said judgment is coming because of people like this, because of their indifference, because of their apathy, because they were not seeking Yahweh. Instead, they were seeking all of these pagan idols. After the evidences are given, he then gives a list of people who are to blame. The officials, the leaders, the judges, the prophets, the priests. They're all wicked. They're all corrupt. They're lions and wolves devouring the sheep. They're fickle to the word of God. They profane the word of God. They despise his laws. And these are the people who are in charge. These are the leaders of Jerusalem. These are the leaders of the Jews and of Judah. And this is how they are moving and influencing this community. These people who are in Jerusalem are then contrasted against the Lord in verse 5. The Lord, of course, is straight and narrow. He does no injustice. Every morning he shines forth justice. Every day he does not fail because he is God. Now in Deuteronomy 32 Oh, that's not the right one. So, in Deuteronomy 32.4, he is described as the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. So you compare this rebellious city to the Lord. You compare uh, who Christ is to these people. And you can see the difference. Right? We compare ourselves to Christ and we know that we don't measure up. Right? You know, apart from Christ, we live in that balance of apart from Christ, of course, we are all guilty. It is because of his righteousness, it is because of his sacrifice. We're all unjust, we're all rebellious, we're all defilers, corrupted by sin. But, again, where do you place your butt? We're being made into the image of Christ, to the power of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God. And that is encouraging. 
That gives us hope as believers, as we go through the junk of this life, as we go through these hard circumstances. We put our trust in him because of his word, and his word never fails. He is just. There is no injustice in him, and he does all of the work for our salvation, just like he does here for these people. Let's reread verse six and seven. He says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. And I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. So he's already defeated all of the other nations. Now this, in the immediate context, would be those that would be surrounding Judah. This would include the northern kingdom. So it's probably talking about how God used the Assyrians to defeat and conquer all of these nations. And they were able to see what was going on. They were seeing what happened to their brothers and sisters, to the surrounding nations, and they were realizing, they were to realize that, look, God's judgment is coming down. I better repent. I better turn back to him. I better seek him before this judgment comes. Remember what we talked about last week in chapter two, verses two and three. Heed the warning of before. Seek him. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. But they were to see this destruction and repent in order to not be cut off. And I want to flip verse seven on its head a little bit kind of understanding what the response is by using the opposite of what's said there. So basically, those in Judah were saying, look, I'm not gonna fear you. I'm not gonna accept your correction, and don't call me Shirley. You know, it's, in today's terminology, Judah's like, oh, that happened to Israel? Here, hold my beer. Watch what I do. And they jump headlong into corruption, all the more eager to jump into corruption. How wicked is our hearts and selfishness that they would see all of these things that were happening and we sit back and we think, how? How can you see all of this that's going on and still think, yep, I'm just gonna go further into corruption. I'm gonna go further into defilement. I'm gonna go further into wickedness. Why? You know, and we talked about this in Sunday school. It never fails. I love the summer because there's no Sunday school and there's no points that could be taken before. But it was right on the nose. We look at Israel, we look at what happens to them, and we think, why? How can they do this? How can they see the power of God and do this? Flip it to our own lives. How can we understand salvation and still walk in the ways that we do? How can we see all of the goodness of God in his word and still be plagued by sin? Have moments of doubt, corruption, rebellion, defilement, even as believers. The indifference, the apathy that we had talked about, the idolatry that still plagues us as we selfishly desire our own ways, even after tasting the beauty of salvation. They are surrounded by all of this corruption, and God says, wait for me. Judgment's gonna be coming. And you look at verse eight. I love the descriptive language that's used. All of it. All those who are wicked, including those in Judah. I don't know if I have that one there. Yeah. 
all those who are wicked, including those that are in Judah, are going to be under his wrath, his burning anger, his indignation, his fiery zeal, his passion that he has to purify the nations. Similar back to to chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where he talks about how he will sweep away everything, how everything will be utterly consumed, how everything is going to come under his judgment. But then it transitions. Kind of like the rainbow after the flood, you have this transition that happens between God's pronouncing judgment in verse 8 to this blessed hope that's found in verse 9. Now this is going to point more towards the millennial reign, where he will make the people's speech more pure. And this is where the beauty of understanding languages can come into play in terms of Hebrew. The term speech can also be translated as language or lips. And immediately when I saw that in terms of another translation, I went to Isaiah. And as Isaiah's in the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter six, he says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And God sends an angel to take the censer and touch his lips, where God is doing that action again, to do that work to sanctify and purify his people. In the same way that as believers, he gives us the Holy Spirit to continue to sanctify and purify his people, to make us into the image of Christ. And it's such a beautiful thing to see when we look towards this rain and to look and see how this people is going to have pure speech. And the term change there, it, it, it's more of an indication to um, an instant change, not a long, prolonged one. So everything would happen in an instant where all of the nations is gonna come back to him. You know, They use those that are south of Cush because that's the, the farthest known south pieces of the earth that the Jews would understand and know about. So it's just referencing the remotest parts of the earth. Everyone is going to be gathered by the Lord and his people will be called back into himself to the promised land. At this time, the people would be cleansed. Guilt would be removed. Feelings of shame, guilt would no longer be there because they would be humble instead of proud. These people would be humbly and lowly received, fulfilling what's requested of them in chapter 2, verse 3, to seek humility. And notice how also in verse 12 it says to seek the Lord. Again, this understanding, this main theme of seeking, seeking the Lord as the refuge, rather than the idols, rather than the pagan traditions as some are practicing. They would seek him as a refuge. We talked about this last week. When we seek, it is to be done with all of our heart and in humility. As I continue on, I look at verse 13, and I'm just in, I'm in awe of these next sections. And when I look at verse 13, I think of the list of people that I have, that if I, when I, if I get to the kingdom of heaven, that I would love to just hug, to talk to, to see again. And, and you look at how this is described, because it puts me at peace. You know, and another interesting connection, you look at verse 13 and you compare it to verse 5. And you can see the similarities. You can see the comparison between the Lord and now his people. Where on that day, his people would be just like him. No injustice, no lies, no deceit, no fear. What a beautiful day that we long for. It truly is. 
especially as we experience the pains of this world. You know, the pains of this world that we have been talking about through Zephaniah's eyes are meant to drive us back to him, whether that's in repentance or just in faithfulness, where we are seeking him and trusting in him through those hardships. Because this is the picture, this is the end goal. This is what we're striving for. Now in the next section, in verses 14 through 17, I want to show you another chiastic structure. And this one's kind of cool. It's a little bit smaller. Um, but when you look at how this is mapped out, and you can kind of follow it along in your Bible. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible like this, but when you see like the 14a, basically that's the first clause or the first line. So that's the first part of chapter, verse 14. That that's what it's talking about. And then you give the summary, how Zion is singing. Israel shouts in 14b. And you see this, and you see the progression and the patterns where it goes from how Zion is singing and shouting and Jerusalem is full of joy to then God is joyful. God is singing. God is shouting praises over his people. And you can see the beauty of this moment. You can see the beauty of the millennial reign and the hope that we have that is just exuberant. It's jubilant. It's triumphant. And when you look at this, it's just pure jubilance. You look at the first four terms there in, in verse 14. It's about singing. It's about shouting. It's about rejoicing. Um, how the people's language moves. And it's just joyful. It's a time that I hope that we all long for. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, you see the reason why they're rejoicing. The enemies are cleared. They have their judgments taken away and the Lord is in their midst. You know, we look forward to this day. And there's definite moments that we're caught up in this rejoicing. But you know, how does this teaching of, of Zephaniah impact us on this side of the cross? You know, understanding that sin has been dealt with. That we have the very presence of God dwelling in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Are we joyful? Are we rejoicing? Are we shouting praises? Are we singing with gladness? You know, as believers and recipients of God's grace, we absolutely look forward to the coming kingdom. But I don't want us to neglect each day that we have been given as an opportunity to live life and live it abundantly because Jesus is a part of our life. His Holy Spirit dwells in us, strengthens us, and we get to experience his mercies and his grace each and every day. And that is encouraging. That is hope-filling. Now, perhaps because we struggle with some fears, we have hard circumstances, this type of attitude of rejoicing can be cooled over time. I definitely get that. But as we've talked about, the Lord has not given us a, a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power, of love, and of self-control. And in each of the opportunities that we face each and every day, we have an opportunity to respond in faith and in confidence in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To walk in full confidence of what his word says and what he has done in terms of salvation, in terms of grace. I love verse 17. He will quiet us by his love. 
His love here is a love that delights in him. In Hebrew, there's a couple different terms for love. And this one, you know, this one is a little bit different than the normal term. It is the same type of love that is described when Jacob loves Rachel, when Jacob loves Joseph, when Jonathan loves David, when God loves his people. In Hosea 3.1. Are you familiar with the book of Hosea? It's a, it's a fun book to read when I'm contemplating going over in the fall. Hosea 3.1 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man as an, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. The love that God has for us is one that will be jubilant and rejoice and sing over us. It is unconditional. You know, if you're struggling with with your understanding uh, of being able to picture whether or not God loves us, I suggest just sit in verse 17 for a while. Just sit with this verse and praise him. What he would do for his people. Along with the picture of love, if you're still not confident in the might and the power of God to be over your circumstances, let's look at how he closes this book in the last three verses. In verse 18 through 20, eight times he uses the form of I will, or I am going to, or when I. It kind of depends on your translation of what's being used there. But eight times he's talking about a future restoration of Israel. And here I would say that this is spiritual Israel, the kind of Israel that Paul talks about in the book of Romans, to where it is God's people, not necessarily natural Israel. Um, But it's something that the Lord will do because he is going to accomplish his purposes at that time. And at that time, it would be bringing a blessing to Israel and their fortunes would be restored. So their hope that our confidences would be fully in him and not in ourselves because this is his work, this is his doing. And I wanna, wanna point out that this is where Zephaniah finishes this book, where our focus and our emphasis is on him. It's not on our sin, it's not on the corruption, it's not on the struggles, but on him. And as we look back at the book as a whole, we see all of these wonderful structures and we see these contrasts, we see these comparisons that are made to highlight Uh, his teachings. Go back to the opening chapter and look in verse two with me. Where he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. He's going to utterly consume everything. This is how the prophecy starts. It is about judgment, right? Now look at the last phrase of the book where basically he's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to make you a name, a name that will be praised among the peoples. So this is a book that goes from judgment to blessing. It is a book that is so beautifully linked to the gospel message. 
in terms of the utter defilement of the people, the utter defilement of the world, the sin that is transgressed against a holy God, and the judgment that is poured out on one man, one man who takes the, the price for all so that we might become the righteousness of God. What kind of love is that? What kind of love would go to those lengths? It is a love that will restore his people unto himself by taking the punishment that we so readily deserve so that one day we might be glorified so that we can worship and praise and honor him for eternity. You know, in, in this type of thought, and this teaching, it helps me to push through those difficult trials, to lean on other passages like Romans 8.18, one that I've leaned on heavily in the last four or five years. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now this isn't to say that our present sufferings are not hard or not difficult because they are. This isn't to say that through those sufferings we have to keep a smiling face on because you don't. The junk in this life is terrible. Full stop. Call it for what it is. But what I hope that we glean and gain from this book is that those things in life are there to remind us that we live in a fallen and broken world so that we might seek him who will restore all things unto himself. Because surely we can see these things and fear God. Surely we can accept his correction. Surely we would be able to proclaim his name above all others as the only name in heaven and under the heaven by which man must be saved. Because surely he will restore his people and we can put our hope and trust in him who will do abundantly more than we can ever imagine. Because he is God. And our praise, our glory, and our honor go to him in his name forever and ever. We can hopefully look at this book and rest that God's got this. And that as we go through these struggles and we go through this life, we need to seek him. Not half-heartedly, not with apathy, not with indifference, but seek him with our whole hearts. Seek him in humility and seek his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I do want to praise you today as you have continued to show us how faithful you are to a corrupt, rebellious people. And Lord, as we fit that bill, Lord, I pray for forgiveness and I pray for repentance. And I pray that we are able to seek and trust in you uh, even through those hard times. Lord, we need that more and more. Father, through those hard times, I pray that you would give us comfort, that you would give us peace that can only be known by you. Through those hard times, I pray that we can lean on your truth and that we can rejoice in the salvation that you have given. Lord, as we, as we go through our days, I pray that you would begin to write in our hearts those moments of joy, those times that we are able to rejoice, that we wouldn't take the days that you have given us for granted, but that we would be able to see your beauty and your truth. 
to give credit where credit is due, to praise your holy name. And Lord, if we don't have the words to say, I pray that the groanings of our spirit could be made clear to you because we are seeking after you with our whole heart. Lord, help us to repent of our apathy, of our indifference towards you. Help us to repent of lukewarmness that has plagued our mentality and our mindsets, that has taken us away from you and instead given us over to the things of this world. Lord, help us to repent from that idolatry in our life, that rebelliousness. Help us to repent from the defilement and the corruption of sin that can still easily entangle us, those struggles that become strongholds. Lord, help us each and every day to understand your gospel message from what we are saved from and what we are saved unto. Lord, you have made us a people to be a people of joy. So I pray that our joy would be able to come out this week as we're interacting with those in our community that we might be a model for what it is to praise you. Rather than grumbling and complaining, Lord, that our spirits and our hearts would be full of joy. Lord, you have given me this breath today. May I use it to bless your name instead of curse. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.